Welcome to the Intentionist Podcast, where we explore the interplay between intuition, spiritual health, and everything in between. I'm your host, Amy Schreiber. And I'm Hilary Zwallen. Our intention is to create a dialogue that inspires you to consciously forge your path with curiosity and compassion for life and its mysteries. in your life, be it with faith, job, parenthood, etc. Today's episode will feel like a godsend, and I'm not joking about that. I just got finished listening to Amy's interview, and I feel like the lightning bolts are blazing in my brain. Have you ever had that experience when someone expresses an idea, a feeling, or an emotion that you've just been unable to vocalize, and you're like, yes, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was feeling or thinking? Well, that's what today is. So Amy talks with Raven Haymond about the role of story during life transitions. They discuss everything from childbirth, change, claiming your voice, faith transitions, and learning to nurture and honor yourself while accepting other people and the paths that they're on, even if they're diametrically opposed to the path that you're on, right? Something we can always, that can always be reiterated, at least if I'm speaking for myself, right? Raven is a doctoral student in American studies at Penn State University. Specifically, her work engages with folklore, ethnography, and gender studies. A mother to four young children, she's kind of a superhero badass, um, but she's also a trained birth doula and a childbirth educator. Her academic research draws from these areas and focuses on women's experiences of body autonomy and authority during pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum experience. So if you're a man and you're still listening, then I will give you a sticker. Just kidding. Um, But in all seriousness, so many of these themes are universal. And most likely you have a woman in your life who's really important to you, whether it's a mother, wife, girlfriend, daughters, sisters, friends. In this episode, regardless of your gender, we will help you to gain some empathy and insight into your personal journey and the journey of the loved ones around you. So without further ado, Amy and Raven. Thank you so much for joining me today, Raven. Sure, no problem. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to jump right in with asking you about your experiences as a childbirth educator. And you you have four children of your own. So, so how does birth and witnessing and participating in birth experiences shape and change your worldview. How, how has this influenced you? Yeah, you know, for me personally, it kind of changed everything. Um, so I had a birth doula um, supporting me during my second, uh, the birth of my second child. Um, and then I went on to have two more pregnancies and births. Um, and just having her special brand of that compassionate, continuous care um, really impacted me. And so once my youngest was old enough that I felt comfortable leaving him for, you know, a few hours at a time, um, I trained to become a birth doula. And I started with that. And then as I began that work, I became interested in the childbirth education aspect. I've always been a teacher you know, whether it was um, to college students teaching freshman writing or violin or any other number of things. And so it was kind of a natural fit. And I did my training through 
a really wonderful organization called Birthing From Within, and that enabled me to start to start teaching. What I didn't anticipate when I took that Birthing From Within, the initial training, uh, was just how much of a personal impact it would have. So that training is far less about the nuts and bolts, you know, the stages of labor or different medical interventions. And it's actually very much about supporting families where they are, about some archetypal kind of understanding. So understanding if a woman is, you know, maybe in her child and is needing that kind of extra validation and support to get her through whatever phase of labor she's in, or if she's feeling um, orphaned, so neglected and, um, and alone and what she might need at that phase. And it was really about story also about the stories that we tell ourselves about what we're experiencing, uh, the stories that we tell ourselves about our past, and the stories that we tell ourselves about what our future might look like. And those all come into major play during childbirth. It's such a time of transition and vulnerability and power. And so you find that in that space, which is kind of set apart from the everyday routine of life, um, in that childbirth space, uh, women are really grappling with all of these stories that they carry with them and the stories that they carry with them about what this child might bring to their family or how things might change. So as a childbirth educator and also as a birth doula, I think that, you know, in terms of my personal worldview, I just, I was really shown how much power women have in their bodies and in their ability to listen to themselves when they're given that, uh, you know, when they, when they allow themselves to listen to themselves instead of to someone else. I think also it taught me that there are just so many different ways of knowing and of experiencing and that there are many paths that people or birth or any other number of processes can take and still arrive at places that are meaningful, even if it's different from from what they thought it would be at the beginning of that path. And then I think for me personally, you know, I was learning these techniques for modeling for women how to access their voice, um, to regain some, you know, personal authority over their body and their experience, um, Mm -hmm. how to decide for themselves. And it, it didn't happen immediately, but fairly quickly after I started putting this into practice, I realized that I needed to do some of that work on myself and to give myself some of that power. So it really ended up changing my life in ways that I never expected. I thought that going into it, that this would you know, be a job, that it would be something I would be good at, that I would be serving families in a way that was meaningful to me. Um, I had no idea that it would really go on to transform my own life as much as it has. Wow, that's fascinating. So during birth, it's this little, this time set apart, like you said, where all the stories and all these archetypes kind of play out in in full force in these really extreme ways that's that's really that sounds like really deep work that's like next level stuff I wish I had had a doula like like that when I gave birth (laughs) well and it's something it's not necessarily something that you talk about explicitly with your clients um Uh it, it just informs how you interact um how you serve them how you work with them and then it also comes back um after the birth, um, as you listen to them narrate their experience of the birth, because it's obviously going to be quite different from any outsider's 
perspective and learning how to listen to somebody narrate their birth story in a way that validates what they are saying and that doesn't impose your own story on top of theirs, that's a that's really careful work. Um, and there can be a lot of power in simply listening to somebody talk about their birth, letting them express whatever they need to express, whether it's grief or joy or disappointment or delight, and then helping them, you know, tune into the parts of the birth that really were defining for them and, and how they can make it into a story that is going to be powerful for them in, in, in any number of ways afterwards. Yeah, that that's powerful to be witness to that as far as allowing women to be where they are and, and feel what they're going to feel. Because I think there's a lot of a weird expectation around the birth process and like, oh, I'm supposed to feel this certain way and here's my child and why, why do I feel weird? I don't feel immediately connected as like anywhere from that to, yeah, like you said, grief or it's this major life transition. So I think we're not really taught what to do with that in our culture, at least. No, we're really taught, yeah, in, in Western culture, we're very good at learning, you know, this is what early labor might look like, or this is what transition might look like. And this is, you know, this is how many times to feed your baby every day. What we're less good at is supporting the whole person. And, you know, you see that a lot also in, in postpartum support. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in some cultures, um, I'm especially thinking of Asian cultures, but in other ones as well, there's this period after the birth, usually for about 40 days or about six weeks, where the community really rallies around this new family um, and they're feeding them and the new mother is expected to, you know, just her, her main job is to just be there, be with her baby. Everyone else will take care of the details. And we really lack that in Western society. So our stories that we tell about birth are all about, you know, how quickly did you bounce back? Um, how quickly did you go back to work yeah. and, and achieving certain milestones that we've decided are, you know, make like an A plus experience. Uh, we're far less equipped to deal with the emotional aspects of birth, mm-hmm. the transformation that happens. And, um, and then, you know, also the emotions after birth and, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but, you know, in terms of postpartum mood disorders, um, Mm -hmm. we're, we're slowly starting to build, you know, a scaffolding to talk about postpartum mood disorders in a way that is healthy and helpful, but it's still very slow going. So overall, it's a very left-brained approach to this event that is... yeah. Huge. Yeah, that's why that's why we like, you know, a lot of people like and I'm not uh, putting it down necessarily, but a lot of people really like books like what to expect when you're expecting because it lays it all out for you. It seems so black and white and it's very clear. Um, and sometimes part of the birth process is kind of unraveling those expectations mm-hmm. and and saying I can be resilient. I can approach this mindfully you know, one step at a time, one breath at a time, and I can make decisions as they come. And that if this birth doesn't fit whatever idea I had for my birth, that I can still work with it, that it can still be meaningful and I can still find a pathway to being fulfilled and satisfied with my experience. That's, yeah, that's great approach. The flex, the flexibility, like being able to cultivate, like you said, that idea that you can, you can do it in the moment. Like you don't have to plan this out step by step because it's not going to go the way that you 
expect it to because it that's rarely just does. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've seen, you know, uh, any number of I don't know if I call it types of birth, but you know, I've, I've been in the OR with, um, clients. I've done home births. I've, you know, birth center births, hospital births, unmedicated or medicated. And there's definitely a lot of stories about what makes the right birth on both ends Mm of, you know, any kind of spectrum. Some people think it's crazy to uh, want to birth without pain medications. And and then you hear stories about, well, you know, you don't need to be a hero or you don't need to prove anything, uh, which Mm -hmm. I think are kind of damaging words. Uh, And then you have people, of course, on the other end of the spectrum who feel like giving birth with pain medication or in a hospital uh, is denying yourself, you know, access to to something that you can only get through home birth, perhaps. And I think that's also limiting and damaging. There's a full array of experience and each one is going to be valid and and right in its own way. So going back to the different cultural expectations and views on birth, I know you've done some research about placentas and mm-hmm. their, their use. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the placenta is this really kind of magical organ because um, it's a it's a shared organ so it's shared between the mother and the baby so that makes it unique and then it's really the only organ that's designed to be disposable to be temporary so it grows as the baby grows and then it is released by the body after birth and so I think kind of that it's already kind of a magical item and and so that lends itself to a range of taboos as well as rites and rituals. Um, so, you know, there's, it's common in some cultures for people to, for example, bury the placenta and to maybe perhaps plant a tree right above it as a symbol of, you know, this new life and to also return life into the earth. In Western culture, you know, uh, at least in recent history, most women don't um, give the placenta much thought. They just, you know, their their provider might hold it up for them at the end of the birth to show it to them, but then it kind of just goes away and it's not a big deal. But uh, my research focuses on women who choose to consume the placenta, so as pills or raw or in a smoothie or as placenta truffles. There's any number of recipes. So consuming it as a food item and then also consuming it uh, as kind of a decorative item. So, you know, making placenta prints to hang on the wall or um, jewelry made out of placenta Um, You know, it's infused into the beads, things like that. So I'm really interested in how, and it's not all people who are birthing at home or people on on a perhaps more radical end of the birth spectrum. It's a lot of people who are birthing in hospital um, and want to take advantage of what they perceive as, you know, improved access to emergency personnel and NICUs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love that there's this process of kind of reaching back to a time before this kind of technocratic model of birth, you know, with an emphasis on technology and, and machinery, reaching back before that to a time when when it was more intuitive and more of a an art and less of a science. And then I just also see see this as women reclaiming uh, some authority and some autonomy that they might have lost in the birth room, saying, I'm going to do this thing that my doctor thinks is crazy, uh, but I'm going to do it because it feels right for me. I hear that a lot, that my uh, a neighbor or an aunt or a sister said it worked wonders for their postpartum healing, so I'm going to do it even though med- the medical establishment 
doesn't agree with me. So it's just, it's just this really interesting space of ritual, of creating new traditions, and of women making choices uh, apart from an independent of um, maybe the medical establishment at large. That's fascinating. So it's kind of this final celebration of creativity at the end of the ultimate creation of a child. Definitely. And it's a, it's a recognition of, I think, the power of the body to heal itself, maybe. I think it's also, it's just a, it's a very concrete way of saying, I'm choosing to listen to myself right now, to tap into something that runs deeper than scientific research. Uh, so it's highly creative and highly uh, meaningful to people that participate in it. Have you participated in any placental art or food? <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't. Um, I I feel like it's become more of a thing recently. Um, uh-huh. I mean, you see it in the news, like Kardashians and other celebrities talking about consuming their placenta. My youngest is five, and I guess I don't think I really knew it was a it was even a thing until I became a doula, which was after his birth. And so it's interesting. I don't know um, because I'm not in that moment. I'm not sure, you know, what Mm -hmm. choice I would make now. But my business partner when I was a doula uh, encapsulated placentas. And so that was kind of my in and I I started hearing about it that way. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing either, at least like in in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I gave birth to my son, he's eight. But I watched the process in the mirror to mm-hmm. to kind of see the progress. But then when the placenta was about to come out, they took the mirror away and were like, you don't want to <laughs> see this part. And I thought, well, I kind of do. What is it? What is this like shameful, gross thing that I can't see? So that's that's good that it's less mysterious and more acceptable now. Yeah. And I've been doing some research on the power that lies in transgression. So in crossing boundaries between maybe clean and dirty or pure and dangerous. And the placenta, I mean, just like your story there, lies at that perfect intersection of, you know, clean and dirty, of uh, pure and impure. Um, So Mm -hmm. this idea that it's something gross or something to be ashamed of, that's what makes it so powerful when we treat it in reverse, when we decide that actually it's very powerful and very personal and that it can really be helpful. So that's exactly, you tapped into exactly what makes it powerful. Can you talk more about that that research? Like what other kinds of transgression type situations <laughs> do, you, do you study? That's fascinating. Oh. <laughs> it's newish for me. I'm thinking of a book um, by an anthropologist. Her name is uh, Mary Douglas, and the book is Purity and Danger, I believe. And she just talks a lot about how how there's symbolic power in taking something labeled as dirty and transforming it, kind of an al- alchemy process, transforming mm-hmm. it into something powerful. So you see that a lot with women's things, even with something like menstruation, um, which has right. been labeled uh, and packaged as something in our culture and Western culture as something to be ashamed of, uh, something dirty, something to hide. You see women uh, uh, changing that. So, you know, in other cultures, some t- um, women who are menstruating are seen as powerful, sometimes for bad. Uh, you know, they might affect the crops in a negative way or or there's some traditions where a breastfeeding woman shouldn't um, come in contact with a menstruating woman because it's believed that it will dry up her milk. But then you also see women transforming it into something for good. So, for instance, I know women who 
uh, have used that blood to create artwork or, um, you know, you see, you see women trying to reclaim it. So mm-hmm. anytime you cross over these boundaries between what something has been labeled and you try to re-narrate it and relabel it, there's just um, the potential there for, for something really powerful. And do you think the power mostly lies in this, the person reclaiming their own voice, kind of like what you were talking about with birthings, like when women or anyone takes something that has this arbitrary label as bad and they say, no, this, <laughs> this doesn't have to be this. This is like this natural part of me or whatever it may be. It's the assertion of their, their label onto it. It's their voice. Yeah. Yeah. It comes back to story, to the stories that we tell ourselves. And, you know, when I say story, I don't just mean like once upon a time, although those stories Mm -hmm. are important as well, but the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about our experience are just so key. And so part of, you know, working with women in birth is teaching them. And then of course, in process, teaching yourself how to look at the stories you're telling yourself and how to really key into their true source, their true origin. So, you know, is this thing I'm telling myself, is that something that I actually believe? Or is it something that my mother said once when I was 11 and it stuck with me and now it's become a part of my belief system, but maybe I don't have to hold on to that. Maybe I can let it go. Mm. And birth has the potential, that space, like I talked about, of vulnerability, but also of great power, creates a a potential for really closely examining a lot of those stories and beliefs. And, you know, if you dare, (laughs) um, taking it to the next step and, and shedding the ones that no longer serve you and replacing them with ones that ring more true to yourself. And I think you see this in a lot of life transitions. I think when we when we choose a, a life partner or somebody that we at least intend to be with for life, I think there's so many expectations and stories of what it, you know, that partnership should look like. And part of growing together as a partnership is figuring out which of those stories make sense for you and which ones don't. And the more mm-hmm. we cling to stories that don't actually make sense for us, the harder things become. Um, and I think it also happens, you know, with death. So in our in our society, we've really chosen to hide death. We prefer not to think mm-hmm. about it. Um, death happens in a hospital. We, you know, we treat dead bodies in a specific way that almost just continues a denial of of the natural process that is occurring. Right. But now you see um, like the home death, home funeral movement kind of starting to gain traction and this idea that no, we can we can choose to fully see death. We can write new stories about what it means to grieve and to mourn and to honor and just how powerful re-narrating can be and changing up those stories for ones that, that serve us. Yeah, that's an especially interesting subject in our culture, death. That's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that struck me most since I'm living in Mexico right now and We have the Day of the Dead, and it's like this great grand celebration. Everyone's skeletons. Skeletons aren't this gross, bad thing. They're like the happy ancestors. You know, it's it's not so hidden. It's more out in the open. Well, and just like with birth, you know, um, I think that hiding it actually does a a major disservice to all of us um, because it removes what is natural. Um, so in birth, you know, so many times, most of the births that I attended, my own included, (laughs) you know, it was maybe the first time that 
these women or their partners had seen a birth, had been around birth. And when we do that, when we hide things and, and put them away and, and label them with things like shame or, or dirty or, you know, vile even, then we just deny ourselves the opportunity to really engage with them, to engage with the process, to understand it as something that happens all over the world. You think of other cultures where maybe, you know, a woman is supported by her cousins and aunts and younger nieces and and that the education that that brings and, and a sense of cycle and and process that I think we, by by putting things behind closed doors, we deny ourselves the opportunity to really key into that idea. Yeah, I think that's important as far as just even just accepting the fact that things change, like everyone yes. intellectually realizes that, but to hide all the changes in life and to to not talk about them, that that really yeah, prevents you from being being prepared, being educated and being like okay with these things when they happen. Yeah. Uh, we've chosen, you know, short-term comfort over long-term understanding. Um, there might be some initial discomfort when we first encounter birth or death or separation or any kind of change. Um, but if we make that a practice, then it, it allows us to engage with deeper ideas that go beyond temporary comfort. Yeah. So you mentioned that when you talked about stories during transition and how some stories are are not serving, you realize that they're not your own stories and that's why it's important to look at them during these times of transition or every time. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think is the most important prerequisite to allowing this changing and growing rather than clinging to these old stories? I think it's really learning to trust yourself. Letting go perhaps of the idea that there is this answer outside of yourself, that there is um, a system, you know, set in stone of checklists and to-do lists, and maybe even that there is a, a judge that exists outside of yourself. So that trust is about really taking the time and the space to listen to your, to yourself, to what you really want, and then taking chances and allowing for, you know, a flow that operates outside of strict ideas about what life is supposed to be like. So a lot of times when we're going through transitions, major life transitions, you're always going to be confronted with stories. And I think it's really important to start to take responsibility for how you are processing those stories and taking the time. I mean, that's something, you know, our culture is often just so rushed and we want to get through a transition as quickly as possible so we can move on and be back to ourselves when really we need to recognize that it's always a process of change and of evolution and that you have to come to a place where you can listen to yourself, recognize what it is that your, you know, whatever you want to call it, your heart, your soul, your spirit is telling you and to learn to trust yourself enough to take that next step forward in that direction, even if it's very different from, you know, what you were told was the right way or the only way or the acceptable way. Um, And I think learning how to live your life that way is quite brave and daring Uh, But I think ultimately it results in a life that is meaningful to you and that is defined only by what you perceive and and express and desire and less by what, you know, society 
or a particular institution has decided for you should be um, perceived and desired. That's amazing advice. I think especially taking responsibility for how you're using the stories and looking at them, see how they're operating. Yeah. Is there a certain transition for you that was most difficult or where you kind of gleaned a lot of these insights first? (laughs) I mean, I think... Uh, we have so many transitions throughout life and sometimes we don't even recognize them and we don't do them the honor that they deserve. You know, of course, I think going through birth and becoming a parent, that's a huge transition. Um, I think for me, probably the biggest one, at least currently in my life, uh, or the most difficult was choosing to leave the organized religion of my youth, uh, the LDS church, something that was really important to my family and really defined who we were and who I was choosing to leave that and then venture into this completely unknown territory of life outside of that institution and and that set of, you know, rules and also just choosing to leave behind that the enormous weight of the stories told in that culture about what makes an insider or an outsider or what is right or what is wrong. That's a continuing process for me, but that was definitely a major, a major transition. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that one. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm interested to hear what does, how, how long has it been for you since you made that choice? Gosh, I guess it's been, nine, 10, 11, I guess it's been a, a little over three years. So still okay. pretty fresh. I'm, I'm only 33. I don't only, but I am 33. Um, mm-hmm. And so three years, you know, compared to the 30 years that I spent highly involved in that um, religious life um, isn't very much. So I feel like I'm still new, newborn to this other kind of life. (laughs) Yeah, it takes some serious uh, deconstruction and rebuilding, especially Mm -hmm. the, the stories. So now what does, how do you approach your spiritual life now? What is, what is spiritual wellness mean to you at this stage? Yeah, I've really come to this place where I feel like, you know, spiritual wellness is about finding what is true for you, what guides you to decisions and places that help you feel content and joyful and balanced with with the world and with your experiences. I think that this goes back to my training and work as a doula and a childbirth educator, the idea that there is no one right way to birth. Um, I've really come to this place of understanding there's no one right way to be, to live your life. Mm-hmm. And that really, when you open yourself to that idea, I, I just find that there's so much beauty in the world. Um, I was raised to believe that there was a very specific prescribed way to live your life, to see the world, to interpret the actions of others, right? And so how we interpreted their actions, define them as good people or bad people or righteous people or unrighteous people. So letting go of those labels has really, I think, just freed up my heart to experience the world and to let other people experience the world however they they choose. That's an interesting conversation that would take more time than we have today, probably. But this idea also (laughs) that um, somebody as close to you as your partner can have a very different set of spiritual practices that that ring true for them um, and that that can be okay, that we don't all have to feel the same way in order to empathize with each other, to connect with each other. You know, my husband and I, you know, courted, got married, had our children all 
while very involved in the LDS church. And when we left the church, it was this new experience of, wait a minute, we might end up believing different things. And how do we, how do Mm -hmm. we do that? Because we're so used to believing the exactly same thing. Um, And that's been a really rich and kind of incredible experience. So I think uh, spiritual wellness is about finding what's true for you and honoring what is true for others, allowing everybody the space to experiment and to try new things and to try to create safety for those around us, to, to create a way of interacting with the world that tells other people that we are a safe place for them, that they can share their experiences with us and that we aren't predisposed to judge them a certain way or to see them a certain way. Right. Yeah, that was one of the most striking things that I experienced too when I went through my faith transition. Just the the new interactions with people with with openness that I didn't have those those preconceived judgments about them that I did before. And it's it's become kind of for me like about accepting, I think at heart, I kind of am a control freak a little bit. And so sure. to learn to, to let go of, of wanting to control others, not even like trying to control them, but wanting to, mm-hmm. wanting them to be a certain way. Yeah, that's been a really, a really interesting, important step for me too. Yeah. And especially because, um, you know, if you come from a high demand religion, That's actually a big part of the story, isn't it? That if we really care about a person, the best way to show our care for them is to try to get them to believe what we believe. Because if we can get them to believe what we believe, then they'll truly be happy. And we have the keys to true happiness. And and so that puts us in an automatically, though, it puts us in a place of us versus them, of my way is best. Therefore, every other way is not as good. And that puts you in an automatic space of defensiveness and of constantly thinking that you're responsible for getting people to believe the thing that you believe. And when you let go of that, man, it's just this, this burden is lifted yes. when you can just the see people for who they are. Singing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. The whole process. Including of- the people that still believe, right? The people that. Exactly that still find meaning and beauty in a, in a, in a faith that maybe you have transitioned away from. It's just as important to look back on them with the same degree of uh, compassion and, and openness. And acceptance. Yeah. A hundred percent. So now would you say that when you encounter stories and when you encounter your own stories, do you try to consciously integrate the stories of others as you forge your own new stories? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, I think when you learn, and I think it is a learning process, when you learn to step back from the stories to really see them for what they are, that gives you a lot more power to pick and choose the ones that you're going to hold on to. So this is actually kind of the reverse of what you were talking about, but um, I've really been working recently to unravel (laughs) the story that a thin body is a healthy body or that a thin body is a worthy body. Um, You know, the kind of part of the um, body positive movement, Um, Mm -hmm. the idea of separating stories about value and attractiveness and even health to separate those from um, a particular number on a scale or a weight. 
so, so for me, part of that process is recognizing, oh, oh no, now I see that it's a story that the idea that a, a thin woman is the only kind of attractive woman, that's a cultural narrative. That's a story. And I don't have to choose that, to believe that. And, you know, of course, some stories are deeper ingrained than others, and it's harder to untangle ourselves from them. Um, in terms of stories that I have tried to integrate, I'm not, I'm, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I um, have specific stories from like specific people that I have taken on as my own, mm-hmm. but I think I'm much more open to the bigger stories. So the, the story that all bodies are worthy and beautiful or that all ways of tapping into your own idea of knowing that those are valid and beautiful. I think, I guess, if anything, the story I've really cued into recently is just the idea that women are powerful, that women can make decisions for themselves. And, and part of that is recognizing when stories and voices have been silenced and trying to uncover those as well. And that's kind of part of what I, I'm trying to do with my research, I think, is accessing and uncovering silenced voices so that we can learn from them and, and hear them and and hear what they have to say as well. So you do a lot of interviews with people for your research, is that correct? Yeah, so I um, I study folklore, uh, but I am not uh, one of those folklorists that actually studies a lot of folk tales or folk songs or folk dances. My brand of folklore is um, ethnographic field work, and so I interview people. And then based on what I hear, I try to find patterns, find meaning, and try to kind of interpret what they say and do and make and and why they do those things, why they have meaning for them. So is there a certain really interesting or personally influential story that you've encountered during these interviews? Well, there is a story that has been influential to me. It didn't come to me through my research, but it's one that came to me through my birthing from within training. Um, and it's mm-hmm. one that a lot of people are familiar with. You might be familiar with it. It's the story of Inanna. I'm not familiar. Tell me it. It's, the ancient, uh, it's an ancient Sumerian story. Um, and it's one of those stories that you can just come back to again and again in your life. So kind of the, I'm trying to think of how to condense it, but the the story is about a, a, a woman who is powerful. She has riches, you know, she has wealth, she has power. She's a priestess and a mother and a wife. She has everything she could ever want. But then she hears a call from the underworld and a tugging, a, a call to do something. It kind of uh, harkens to um, the idea of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And so it gets to the point where she can no longer ignore this call. So she prepares herself with all the things that she thinks she will need as she travels to the underworld. And in the underworld is her sister, Ereshkigal. And so Inanna, you know, puts on this, you know, the robe and the crown and the breastplate, all these things that she thinks she will need. And as she descends to the underworld, she actually is forced to strip those things away um, at each gate down to the underworld. She's met with the challenge and part of the challenge is letting go of something that she thought was important and necessary. So then you see as she passes through each gate that she's more and more just herself, her purest essence. And she gets to the underworld and there's an encounter with her sister. Um, and Inanna 
basically experiences death. And then it's kind of a resurrection story as she is um, released from the underworld and travels back up. But this idea that that sometimes we think that we are prepared, we think we've done everything we need to do, and then the realization that all of those things are temporary, that they can be stripped away. I um, This is a story that I would share with birthing mothers sometimes, not in birth, it would be too complicated for that, that setting, but <laughs> ahead of time. This idea that, okay, so you might have a birth plan, you might have hired exactly you know, the right midwife, you might have hired a doula, or you might have read these books that you think are going to give you the answers, but there will probably come a point in your birth where you have to set that birth plan aside, or you have to turn to a different book inside of yourself instead of the one that you thought would give you all the answers and that you will come to a place and we come to these places throughout our lives where you feel deserted or alone or you feel like a part of you has died one of those small deaths that we talk about in psychology or in um, you know mysticism whatever you turn to but that out of that small death comes new life and a transformation and that you will not be the person you were before when you were climbing down those stairs and passing through those gates, you will be different and that that's good and that that's natural and that to try to return to exactly who you were before is only going to cause you pain. So I think that that's something that's really stuck with me as I've worked with birthing families, uh, the idea that we have to be open to change, that when a child comes into our, into our family, you know, through birth or through adoption or through any other process, um, everything changes and to try to cling to the way things were is only going to be painful. And I think that just has continued to echo for me in my own life, um, especially in, during my faith transition. The idea that, uh, you know, it's okay to feel a part of yourself dying and to let go of that part and to move forward knowing that there is newness, that there is a, a new way of being and, and living and knowing that can be beautiful, even if it's quite different. Wow. That's a beautiful story. That's That's great. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah, you should. It's really, it's really powerful. And it's one of the most ancient stories that we have. Um, so it's really pretty great. Because they were the first ones to, to write, right? That's right. The first uh -huh. writing culture. Yeah. So they found this story on these, you know, tablets, uh, clay tablets. And I, you know, I love that it's a, a feminine story. It's a story about a, a woman and that while it's huge and universal, it can also be very small and very personal and applicable to any number of life situations. Yeah, that's one of those those good myths that, that yeah. help you understand and, and accept the transitions. Yes. So like we talked about before, stories, they can be both helpful and harmful, depending on which one you are choosing to focus on and internalize. Yes. I think we're about out of time. I just wanted to ask you one last question. Because as a mother of four children, you have, you've gone through a lot of transition and I'm sure a lot of different ways of relating to yourself. So what do you do now to nurture yourself? Yeah, I, I think that's a question that parents are always <laughs> looking for, right? I, I would say <laughs> yeah. that for me, and I would also say that this is something that came, that was spurred in an even bigger way by my faith transition was um, learning to say yes to myself. So often parenting, and this is good and, and it teaches you really important things, but often parenting is about saying yes to everybody else, to um, trying to meet so many demands and needs, you know, taking children to various activities, helping them with homework, um, trying to be the best parent that you can be for them. 
And while I think that is wonderful and good, and I do try to do that, I think um, sometimes we forget to say yes to ourselves, to our own projects, um, to our own, even our own stories. Um, so saying yes to myself, I think, has been the biggest thing. And and sometimes that's um, very small, everyday ways. So today I'm going to eat this delicious piece of chocolate by myself and it's going to be my own little personal experience and I'm not going to share it (laughs) um beautiful or or it can (laughs) be we've all had that yeah or it can be in um in really big ways so um me saying yes to this idea that I wanted to get a PhD um you know as a mother of four I think a lot of people might see that as crazy or as even selfish um I've gotten the impression from some people that you know, don't you think this is taking away from your children or isn't it too much about you? So learning to to honor my own needs and to honor the idea mm. that we can be multiple things. We can be a, a parent and a student or, you know, a, a parent and a somebody who works full time out of the home. There are so many ways to live life. And I think that the more we say yes to opportunities and to our truest desires and and feelings, the the happier we'll be and that that all trickles down to those around us, our children or our partners or, or anybody that we interact with in positive ways. So true. And that's a really important lesson, especially coming from the background that we both came from. The there's a lot of martyr mentality, I think. Yeah. And a lot of judgment. Um and I think that that judgment completely comes from a place of defensiveness because um, mm-hmm. that's a that's another skill uh, learning to see somebody doing something that's quite different from what you do that might even be a rejection of what you do and learning to see it as a beautiful choice that that person has made a, a beautiful expression of life that has nothing to do with you <laughs> that that there somebody right. can <laughs> exist in a way that is quite different from your way of existing and that you can both be happy in those different paths right you can still celebrate someone else's choices and and whatever else they're doing while still honoring your own story it has nothing to do with each other really that's, yeah that's really important yeah. And the more you celebrate others, the more celebration and joy you're welcoming into your own life. I mean, it's, it's only it's only a good thing. <laughs> yes, 100 percent. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Raven. I think we're about out of time. I feel like we could talk for another five hours about these <laughs> things, but better call it for today. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you again for having me. Before we part, we'd like to say thanks for listening, and we hope you'll connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We would love to hear from you and appreciate all feedback, shares, and likes. To learn more and subscribe to our newsletter, visit intentionists.com. And no matter where you are or what you're creating, we send you love and invite you to breathe and begin. See you next week.